Hey everyone, Paul here. This is part two of Mind Software, how culture programs your values. It is imperative that you listen to part one in order for this part to make sense. In fact, I originally had planned for this just to be one episode, but there's just so much stuff to cover and to explore. I decided, you know what, let's just split it into two instead of having one three hour long episode here. So you're going to want to look for episode 78, Mind Software, How Culture Programs Your Values, that first part, and listen to that before you listen to this one. These are being released within the same week so that you can kind of digest them back to back. But this is part two, part two of Mind Software. All right, make sure you listen to part one. It's, today's episode will not make as much sense as it possibly could. If you don't listen to part one before exploring today's episode. So as a brief recap of a couple of key points before we jump into today's episode, maybe just to refresh your memory, um, because maybe you haven't listened to this just in consecutive days. Maybe you've had a few days gap in between when you've listened to this or maybe a week apart, whatever the case may be. We're exploring how culture, culture is that mediating level between our our universal human nature that all humans share as a species and our individual personality and genetic makeup. Culture is that mediating level of programming. It is the place in between our universal human nature, which is inherited, and our personality and genetic predisposition, which is both inherited and partially learned behavior. Culture acts as that mediating level of programming, of mental programming that happens. And it's particular to the place where we live, the people we spend time with, the social groups we inhabit. And so we've been using the work of Dutch social psychologist Heert Hofsvidi, and we've been exploring Hofsvidi's four dimensions. Eventually, he came up with six dimensions of culture, but we're focusing on the initial four dimensions of culture that act as mind software and program our values and behaviors. Thus far, in part one, we've looked at uh, the difference between small, small power distance cultures and large power distance cultures, and we've looked at the differences between uh, individualistic cultures and collectivist cultures. So refresh your memory on that if you need to. I even encourage some of you, all of you that were listening, I might have encouraged you to take some notes. I'm going to provide some notes on Patreon as well. So just grab all those things that you need and let's dive into it today. As I mentioned in part one of this short mini-series, this third dimension of culture we're going to explore to start today's episode is a controversial one within our current cultural climate here in the U.S. and probably other places in Western civilization. This cultural dimension explores how masculine or feminine a culture is. Now, obviously, there is a growing sentiment among more politically progressive left-wing subcultures in Western society that believes the categories like masculine and feminine are completely learned social constructs. They are simply social constructs that emerge as a product of culture. But I would contend, along with Hosfidi and many other social psychologists, um, anthropologists, 
even biologists, that this idea is misguided. Masculinity and femininity are not merely social constructs that emerge as a product of culture, though they do play a role. I think when we understand these three levels of human programming, of mental programming, the levels of human nature, culture, down to the very micro level of individual personality and genetics, I think we can have a better understanding of masculinity and femininity. The role that men and women play in a society, and side note, yes, I think those categories are biologically verifiable and should still exist. The roles, though, that men and women play in society certainly do differ from culture to culture. There's no mistake about that. But if you were to take a wide-angle view across cultures and ask, is there a coherent pattern that may constitute evidence of a masculine and feminine human nature that's inherited and not learned, I believe, along with Hotspeedy and other social scientists, behavioral scientists, others, I think the answer to that is clearly yes. There are, as a wide-angle view across culture, you see certain patterns of masculinity and femininity that are evidence of an inherited universal human nature that has a masculine and feminine expression that isn't purely learned. Is there diversity among differing cultures and subcultures? Absolutely. There are differences. And as we've talked about before, our universal human nature takes unique shapes and expressions within culture. At another layer of analysis, you could step back and compare humans with our nearest biological relatives like chimpanzees. And when you do that, you find clear evidence of shared masculine and feminine characteristics within chimpanzees and other near biological relatives to homo sapiens. I also, to take it even another layer, so if we wanted to not just go cross-cultural anthropological analysis, we don't want to just take it at the comparative biological analysis, but maybe we even step back and think about it on the, the philosophical and theological level. I personally, I share the opinion of someone like C.S. Lewis who on the philosophical level believed that there was an archetypal masculine and feminine in a kind of platonic form sense that found typical, typically found bodily expression in the male and female body, though that's not always the case. You also see this concept of a kind of archetypal, universal, uh, almost you could say a noumenal masculine and feminine in Eastern thought and Eastern philosophies and religions, such as in Taoism, where the yin and the yang uh, symbolically represent fundamental masculine and feminine energies, as well as in Confucianism. So I think this is not just a, uh, an element of cultural pro programming, that uh, there's no such thing as men and women, like we can really see these extremes in some pretty hyper progressive, um, hyper left wing subcultures where it's like, no, like male and female is just a social construct. And I think that misses it. Are there socially constructed 
characteristics of masculinity and femininity as they take expression in particular cultures? Yes, no doubt about it. Do we also need to assess that people's genetics and individual personalities may not, if they are biologically male and biologically female, fully manifest the masculine and femininity? Yes. Are we actually mixtures of both? Yes. Do we have some of us that are men have more archetypal feminine um, sorts of personality predispositions? Yes. Do we have, on the other side, women that might have more masculine predispositions? What's the gal in um, Peanuts and Charlie Brown? What's her name? Golly, I'm drawing a blank. You guys will that you guys will probably remember her. She's the one that always is playing football and pulling the prank on Charlie Brown where uh, he goes to, to kick the field goal and she pulls it out. You know, the, back in the day, we used to call those tomboys. You know, the, there are differences in our genetic makeup in our personality predispositions, which might bend people one way or the other. So we need to acknowledge that. But if we were to take a step back and look at the universal human nature, is there a sort of archetypal masculine and archetypal feminine? I believe there is. And so uh, I'm in agreement with Hosfidi on this. I know this is controversial. I, again, also want to recognize the role of learned behavior in culture, including the subcultures we inhabit and our genetic makeup, which includes the amount of male and female hormones that we call testosterone and estrogen. These affect our sorts of, are we acting more archetypally masculine or archetypally feminine? Um, you know, and that doesn't mean, for example, I just want to clarify before we get into this, because I know this can be an especially here in America, this can be a really touchy subject. And, and with good reason, too, by the way. Does this mean that, um, you know, that you have to, as a male, embody all of this masculine category? No. And <laughs> especially as we start to kind of outline what is uh, typical of masculine cultures of hyper-masculine cultures, I would say, no, you don't want to embody all of this. You know, there are things within the feminine archetype, the feminine pattern that we go, you know, these are valuable patterns and, and behaviors and values that we actually do want to embody as men and vice versa. Do females only want to embody the feminine? No. Is there value in what the, the masculine archetype brings? Totally, there is. And so this is why I think even, uh, I think there are some really valuable concepts in Taoism, for example, that see the need for balance in, in the yin and yang. I actually think this is a biblical pattern as well. The male-female union in marriage is intended to bring about a balance. We actually, not just a balance in that here we have the perfect masculine, the perfect feminine in a couple. But that as you come together, the, um, you actually begin to pick up some of those characteristics and values of your spouse. And, and again, we're complex people on the individual level, not purely masculine, not purely feminine in these archetypal senses. All right. So with all of those, you know, not just a disclaimer, but hopefully helpful explanation of what this category means. Let's talk about some of the differences 
between masculine and feminine cultures, more masculine-oriented cultures and more feminine-oriented cultures. And let's focus in on maybe some of the key differences we might find in a family setting, in a school setting, in a business, a workplace setting, in more masculine and more feminine cultures. In more feminine cultures, the dominant values in society are caring for others and preservation. In a masculine-oriented society, the dominant values in that society are material success and progress. Again, these are not necessarily good and evil, right? You might see strengths and weaknesses in both, and that's good and important. Again, we're not saying specifically that individual men and in, or an individual woman in that society is going to have this value. We're talking about a larger pattern, an archetype. This is a, a, a larger systematic value system that we see across the culture. All right. So it doesn't mean that an individual woman or an individual man thinks in that culture that material success and progress are the most valuable thing versus, you know, caring for others and preservation in, in, in the feminine value system. It's not what we're saying. It's not at the individual level. This is across the culture. Do we see this masculinity and do we see this femininity? Dominant values in feminine society are primarily caring for others and preservation, whereas the dominant values in a masculine society are material success and progress. Masculine cultures value money and things primarily, objects, where feminine cultures value primarily people and relationships. In those feminine cultures, everyone, there's a, an expectation of you know, of, of modesty. In masculine cultures, though, men are assertive, ambitious, they are loud, right? Both men and women in feminine cultures are, are allowed to be encouraged to be tender, to be concerned about relationships. Whereas in more masculine-oriented cultures, it's really only the women that are supposed to be tender and take care of relationships, where men are supposed to be assertive and tough. The masculine and feminine difference in culture has a very unique expression in family life. In more masculine cultures, the father deals with facts and the mother deals with feelings. That's very different in more feminine-oriented cultures. Both fathers and mothers deal with facts and feelings together. It's a more egalitarian approach um, versus a more complementarian approach. The masculine is more complementary, and it's like, I'm going to deal with this domain, you deal with that domain, these are complements to each other, versus the feminine, which is more egalitarian. The egalitarian, or I should say the feminine culture family, in those families, boys and girls should cry, but not fight, right? Neither should fight. You don't want boys or girls fighting because that goes against the dominant value of caring and preservation. You can both cry, express feelings in masculine cultures. You probably get where this is going, right? Girls can cry, boys don't. Boys fight back, girls shouldn't fight. All right? In masculine culture, you see sympathy for the strong. In feminine culture, there's more sympathy for the weak. 
in an, uh, in a school setting, you know, if you're, you're, you're a student in a masculine culture, the best student is the norm, okay? Because we, we're pushing for material progress, for material success. So it's normative. You are pushing the expectation is that you would be the best. In more feminine-oriented cultures, there's a greater acceptance for being average, um, and that's just fine. We accept and, and, and nurture that. Failing in school and that sort of feminine culture, that's, that's a minor accident. In a masculine culture, failure is an absolute disaster, an absolute disaster. There's a, private, uh, a, a value, uh, an emphasis, I should say, a heavy emphasis in more masculine-oriented cultures in school on having brilliant teachers. Whereas in feminine cultures, it's the emphasis is on friendly or sociable or nurturing teachers. In those, those cultures, boys and girls will study the same subjects with their friendly social teachers. In masculine cultures, the emphasis would be on, no, boys, you study this. Girls, you study this. This is about the, again, the compliment that they would say of boys and girls. Boys do this. Girls do this. You guys compliment each other. Again, this is the femininity aspect is more egalitarian. Boys and girls, you can study the same subjects. You are free to do that. You work in order to live in a feminine culture, right? Work is a means to an end. More masculine culture, you're living in order to work. <laughs> and as you guys, I'm sharing some of these differences, you know, you can probably picture some different national cultures where you can imagine these differences. We'll talk about those national societies and cultures that are more masculine and feminine in, in a moment. But you can also picture on the more micro level, as I'm talking about these differences, uh, different church settings, different families you knew, even different neighborhoods in your state or in your, your larger region that might have expressed, well, that's a more masculine church. That's a more feminine church culture. And it's very interesting to see how these become expressed in the micro level, in the subcultural level. And how those interface with the larger cultural values. Sometimes there can be major conflict. Sometimes, as probably many of you are experiencing, um, many of you that grew up in more conservative evangelical backgrounds, you might have experienced perhaps a more masculine culture in your church in some ways. In your church community, there's the expectation that boys, you know, you work hard, boys can fight, girls stay modest, girls, you know, don't brag, girls don't step out. And, and then you enter into maybe a different cultural context. You went off to college, like for myself, that was primarily the case in my church culture and family culture. But when I went off to a uh, very liberal university undergrad, uh, I found that there was this cultural collision there, and I started to interact and um, experience other subcultures where that wasn't necessarily the case. And yet, there were still cultures I encountered where the masculine emphasis was still the case. It's such a fascinating dynamic uh, when you 
when you see this and you begin to evaluate, well, which one do I think is better? And that's, that's really difficult. A few other points that, that might help you understand some of the differences. I think you're getting, I'm imagining at this point, you're already getting the masculine and feminine differences. But, you know, in masculine cultures, there is a stress on equity, right? Equity in terms of are the rules set so that everybody knows the rules of the game and can compete. So there's an emphasis on competition and performance. You know, this is very much why uh, sports culture in America is largely masculine culture. We set the rules, okay? Um, you, if you are shorter in basketball, you don't get to play on stilts. The equity is found in the rules, and you have to compete with whatever you got to try to perform. And you know what? If you can't cut it, that's too bad. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. Versus more feminine approach, cultural approach, where the, the emphasis is on equality, equality of outcomes, solidarity, quality of work life versus performance and hyper-competition. In those cultures, in the feminine work culture, uh, resolutions happen by compromise, negotiation. In more masculine cultures, conflicts are resolved by fighting them out. <laughs> you just, you duke it out. And, and, and some of you know this even on kind of the more individual personality level, where you're around people, where the the masculine energy is strong, <laughs> you know? You hear this a lot from women who enter into the corporate world uh, and maybe they're in a business that has a largely masculine culture and they have to really push themselves to, to take on perhaps more masculine approaches to things in order to survive that culture. They're not, you know, they might not have the proclivity of just going, we're going to fight this thing out. And you see these sorts of cultural collisions in the business world. Um, and, you know, where a lot of times certain businesses in particular, certain industries might be thought of as the old boys club. And for women, it's very difficult to figure out how to navigate in that. And again, not all women have that difficulty. Some of them maybe have more masculine energy or they've, they've learned to adapt or maybe just genetically they... They have more testosterone, you know, and that can be the case sometimes. So they are able to navigate that dimension. But for others, it's really, really difficult for them to figure out, boy, I, I don't see the value in fighting this thing out. And they might find like among men, this really strange dynamic where guys can just like fight and then the next day be fine with each other. Man, that used to be the case all the time in basketball practice for me when I was younger. You know, I, I had a really good friend, and in my junior year and in his senior year, we would get into fights and practices all the time. I mean, just going at it, like, we need to be separated. Uh, and right after, we were totally fine. And I would, you know, girls would hear about that and they'd go, that is so strange. I can't fathom that. Again, that's not the case across the board, but you can see. The, the, the archetype of masculine and feminine isn't just to think about them as almost like hyper objects from episode 77. There is an, a way in which that is a power over, but it's also a ground up 
um, phenomenon as well from the bottom up. You don't have masculine and feminine energies. You don't have masculine and feminine archetypes without individual males and females. But the difference here I just want to specify is that isn't the case, obviously, for all men and all women. But it is largely across the species that you see this sort of masculine archetype and the feminine archetype, and that is built from the ground up. So you might not be surprised if you go, hey, I'm a guy and I really resonate as I'm listening to this with this sense of like, I want to fight out, you know, fight out my issues with somebody else. I, I, I want to push for material success and progress and you know, I just want to set the rules and like, hey, you know what? You better figure it out, buddy. <laughs> I, you get that. And then some of you are hearing this and going, oh, my gosh, I hate that world. I hate that masculine world. I, I want to make sure that people have equal outcomes and they're cared for and nurtured. And um, you know what? That's, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay that we might even have these genetic predispositions. That's, that's just fine. The most masculine-oriented society in the world is Japan. The most feminine society in the world is Sweden. So if you visited either one of those places, you're going to find massive cultural differences in this regard. How about here in the United States? Well, for scale, if we think of Japan as the most masculine, Japan's masculinity score, yes, there is... Uh, um, Hosfidi put together a masculinity femininity index just as he did with the power distance individualism collectivism Japan's masculinity score is a 95 and Sweden's is a 5 big gap right between those cultures so where's the United States situated the United States is a 62 putting us in the top 15 most masculine-oriented societies among the 50 nations evaluated. Knowing that we are in the top 15 among the 50 nations evaluated the most ma of the most masculine-oriented societies makes a lot of sense to many of you. It helps you probably also understand the, the cultural collision we are experiencing in the U.S., um, there is certainly this movement to, right, dismantle the patriarchy, right, a, a desire to reorient our society in a more feminine direction. And when you go through this list that I just went through of sort of masculine expressions in culture, you know, where the dominant society's material success and progress, money and things are important, men are to be assertive, women are to be, you know, to be tender and take care of relationships. You see this this in the business world where it's like, hey, you know, we're just going to fight it out and we're going to set the rules and you better compete. And it's a doggy dog world, buddy. And you can really see why that's a big problem for a lot of people when you step back and examine it. In particular, there's a real, the, the, the hyper-masculine culture has a real blind spot in what do we do for the weak, the vulnerable those who are unable to compete in the survival of the fittest, the masculine society tends towards a sort of social Darwinism, where it is kill or be killed. It's the law of the jungle, right? Um, only the strong survive, whoever emerges out at the top. You know, we see this oftentimes in, in chimp society, right? In, in chimpanzee culture, where there is the, the, the strongest chimp makes it to the top of the the social hierarchy. And uh, if you're weak, if you're malnourished, you're just not going to make it, bud. 
And, and that's a problem. That's a problem, especially for those of us who are Christians and we're like trying to reconcile if you live in a more masculine culture, like here in the U.S., Jesus's commands to care for the poor and that in the poor and in the prisoner and in the widow and the orphan, you actually encounter Jesus himself. It's very difficult to reconcile the Sermon on the Mount with a hyper-masculine culture. When you step back and go, blessed are the, the, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You're like, no, nah. <laughs> that doesn't work in the hyper-masculine. So you can understand why this happens. Uh, one of my favorite lines, as much as I dislike the sequel trilogy this, uh, in the Star Wars um, saga, I've not not been a big fan of it. There's a just a brilliant line that was in The Force Awakens, which captures it, right, where Snoke says to Kylo Ren, um, you know, darkness rises and the light to meet it. It, it captures this cyclical sense that is, is really communicated well in, in Taoism, I believe. Uh, I think Taoism does do a good job uh, in some regards of revealing philosophical truth. I, th I see it more as a philosophical system than a, than a particular religion. But Taoism does a good job of highlighting how when things get out of balance, when there is a, two, let's say in this case, in the United States, if we veer towards a hyper-masculine culture, what you're going to find is that is that darkness, and I'm not saying it's evil, but the darkness rises, the light will rise to try to meet it. We see these cyclical patterns. You, you see it all the time. In fact, you could even see them in presidential election cycles. We have just went through a very um, masculine presidency, and I want to zero in on that and, and help you understand this dynamic in our culture a little bit, because we've just gone through a, a cycle of four years of a very masculine-oriented culture or desire for a more masculine-oriented culture in the current uh, Trump administration. As of this recording, Trump is still the, the president. We were kind of in that lame duck period. But uh, we've seen this over the last four years. How did that happen? Well, one possibility how we got to that point is that people felt like perhaps maybe the uh, Obama administration, the eight years that we had with Obama was veering more towards femininity in ways that um, go against typical American masculine values. This, is, this masculine feminine dynamic is essential to understanding the cultural divide we experienced over the past four years and before that. It's this wrestling match that we constantly are going through in our culture. We could go through the list of values and behaviors of masculine societies we just discussed, and we go, all right, how many of these sound like a Trump attitude or a Make America Great Again platform? And you just, you go through the list, right? Okay, material success and progress is the primary value. Money and things are important. Men are to be assertive, ambitious, loud, tough. Women tender, you know, they take care of re the relationships. Um, you know, isn't that Donald Trump and Melania's relationship, right? Um, you know, boys don't cry. You know, you, you'll, you would never see Donald Trump cry publicly, right? Has that ever happened? Um, 
you know, you just don't see that. You, you live in order to work. He's got this well-known, um, tireless, he's always working. And that's what's propelled him to be very, very successful as a businessman. As much as you think, well, you know, he had bankruptcies and all these other issues. It's like, you can't deny in our cultural system, this guy's been a success. He's supposed to, you know, uh, someone that's a, a leader is supposed to be decisive and assertive. And on and on, we could keep going through the, the masculine cultural values. And you go, yeah, that's a description of the, the MAGA platform. A lot of people whose subcultural context is more on the feminine side struggle to comprehend how anyone could support Trump. Why does he seem to have no compassion? Why does he only seem to care about the stock market? Why does he talk that way? Why is he so loud and mean, you know? <laughs> the thing is, though, Trump doesn't even become Donald Trump if he grew up in Sweden or Norway. Trump has been near the top of American social business and now political hierarchies because our cultural values have historically been more masculine than feminine. So masculine behaviors are rewarded. Now, is the urban, college-educated woman, especially if she's single, is she ever voting for Trump or someone like him? No, because even the predominant cultural values across the institutions of our society, even though those tend to be more masculine, there are local micro or subcultures that we inhabit that oftentimes can perform deeper mental programming in us than the larger macro-cultural that we simultaneously inhabit. Now, you take that same gal and you give her a different set of subcultural experiences of local micro-culture experiences. And let's say instead of this gal, this hypothetical college-educated ed gal living in the city, instead of her living in Portland or San Francisco or here in South Minneapolis, She's raised in rural West Virginia. Do you think she's still going to be fundamentally opposed to a Donald Trump presidency? No, absolutely not. Because the culture we inhabit acts as the mind software that programs our values. Does that mean that you have no control over it? No, I'm not, that's, that's not the case. I'm not saying that. All I'm trying to point out is that these differences that we have, that we think, boy, that other person is evil. You know what? You put us in the same situation, and you are largely going to turn out the same way. You're going to have similar values. So for people, this is so crucial, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this, this, this and cover this subject uh, in this particular cultural moment, even though I know I have to finish up that Problem of Evil series, and I'm still working on that. We're going to get there. But I felt this was so important to cover this particular cultural moment because we are so prone to demonizing each other in the culture war. We can't possibly fathom how someone else could vote for Donald Trump. We can't possibly fathom how someone else would vote for Joe Biden. It's like, depending on your cultural context, imagining why someone has that particular value and acted that particular way is just beyond comprehension. But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It, it doesn't mean that we go, well, all, all of this is completely relative 
and there is no truth. There is no good and evil. There's no better or worse ways of governance. That's not saying that. All I'm saying is we need to understand each other and understand how just like you look at that person on the other side of the political spectrum, in the other side of the culture war, and maybe you look down on them and you go, well, the only reason why they think that way is because they were raised this particular way, or they live this particular place, or they go to this particular church, or they don't go to church. It's like, You just have to step back and realize those same forces are operating in you too. (laughs) So maybe they are not evil. Maybe they've been culturally programmed a different way than you, and we should have a little bit of grace for that. That's why I don't, when I am walking down the streets of South Minneapolis, and I still see, you know, Biden signs out on the lawn, I don't assume that everybody in there is, you know, a particular way, um, just because I grew up in a largely Republican culture. The same way when I drive out of the city, and I am seeing someone with a Trump flag on the back of the truck, I don't instantly assume they're a Nazi. (laughs) They just have different values. Maybe they see in this case, that they believe America needs more of these masculine values. We need to rebuild our economy. What are the things that Trump ran on? Draining the swamp, you know, like rebuilding the economy, all these things, these masculine energies. Sometimes we do need a little bit of masculinity. Sometimes we need the feminine. And, you know, it's the masculinity that, that is the thing that goes out into the, the wilderness and conquers the the forces of nature that would threaten to kill us when, when we are out. And, and it makes useful things out of the materials of the world. And it's, it's brave enough to take down tyrants. And, you know, that that's an important feature. But we also have the, the, the necessary need for caring for the weak, for um, seeing value in those who are not competent enough to perform and, and to succeed in the rules of our game. You know, the, the, the people that are like, hey, you know what, I'd love to play basketball, but I'm four foot two and I'm missing a limb. Like, can we, do we only get to play basketball? And it's like, no, we need that energy that goes, hey, there's still a place for you too. And this tension that we experience in our culture, especially when it's so sad that we only have two parties and some of this stuff just gets split down. You can have this party or this party because that's just the way our political system is set up. It really bifurcates our culture and creates or worsens this culture war. But if we can understand and see value in the balance and in the tension, if we can see that the masculine and feminine need each other, then I think we can begin to see those other people, the people on whatever the other side of the political aisle is from you, we can begin to appreciate that they have maybe something valuable to add to the conversation. So don't demonize them. All right, this brings us to the final dimension, the final cultural dimension that I I, I want to explore together. And it's what Hofstede called uncertainty avoidance. (laughs) 
How comfortable or uncomfortable does a culture feel with unstructured situations? What is your disposition towards new situations and novel experiences? Do you tolerate ambiguity or avoid it? A culture that has a strong uncertainty avoidance tries to plan and prepare for every possible situation. They try to create laws and customs that minimize uncertainty. The fundamental issue is that because the future is unknown, do we want to try and control the outcomes to become more predictable, or do we want to try to let the future happen as it will? The sort of go-with-the-flow mentality would be what we call weak uncertainty avoidance. So strong uncertainty avoidance is we are trying to minimize the possibility of uncertainty through laws, customs, and practices that minimize the uncertainty of the future versus the go-with-the-flow mentality, that weak uncertainty avoidance, weak or low uncertainty avoidance. We're kind of fine with what's going to play out. Que sera, sera. So what are the key differences between what we would call weak uncertainty avoidance cultures and strong uncertainty avoidance cultures? Well, in weak uncertainty avoidance cultures, uncertainty is viewed just as a normal feature of life. Each day is accepted as it comes. Not the case in a strong uncertainty avoidance culture. The uncertainty that's inherent in life is felt as a continuous threat, which we must fight against and prepare for. As you can imagine, that's more of a high stress, uh, high anxiety culture versus the weak uncertainty avoidance cultures, which would maybe feel as they just go sera sera, a low stress, a lower feeling of anxiety experienced in those cultures. In the weak uncertainty avoidance cultures, low stress, go with the flow, aggressions and emotions should not be shown. Versus in the strong uncertainty avoidance culture, aggressions and emotions are proper at times and may be ventilated, they can be helpful, in dealing with the continuous threat of the future. In the weak uncertainty avoidance culture, there's a comfort level with ambiguous situations, with unfamiliar risks, but not the case if you live in a strong uncertainty avoidance culture. There's an acceptance of familiar risks, maybe like getting in a car, driving to work, but there's a fear of ambiguous situations, of unfamiliar risks. Again, we're trying to minimize those risks because those risks are outside of our control. Higher level anxiety, higher level of stress, trying to minimize the uncertainties of life. That leads to tighter rules for children in schools and in family, family settings versus those weak uncertainty avoidance cultures where the rules are more lenient. Uh, there's less there's less um, taboos about what you can and can't do, say and can't say. In those cases, what might be different is just a curious thing worth exploring. Not the case in the strong uncertainty avoidance culture. What is different is perceived as dangerous. Students in school at a weak in a weak uncertainty culture might be comfortable with open-ended learning, having good discussions, but in strong uncertainty avoidance cultures, students are aimed and, and programmed to be uh, within structured learning situations all the time. They're concerned with right answers. The right answers provide stability. They minimize the anxiety 
They minimize the uncertainty about the future. And in those cases, those teachers better have all the answers for you. Because if you don't have an answer to a tough question, that's an uncertainty and you're trying to avoid it. That's not the case in educational settings in weak uncertainty avoidance cultures. Teachers can say things like, oh, I don't know, or that's gray. It might not be black or white. Now, how do these differences play out, let's say, in work between a strong uncertainty avoidance culture and a weak uncertainty avoidance culture? Well, when it comes to work, there is this inner urge in a strong uncertainty avoidance culture to, to work. There's an emotional need to be busy. Whereas the Kesara sera, go with the flow nature of the Weak uncertainty avoidance culture goes, hey, you know what? We're more comfortable with relaxation, with taking a nap in the day. We work hard really only when it's needed. There'd be an expectation in those cultures that, you know what? Being on time for something, eh, it's a little bit flexible. We don't have to be so rigid about being on time for something, being on time for a meeting, an appointment. Uh, you, you're going to have to learn that sort of behavior. Not the case in strong uncertainty avoidance cultures. As you can imagine, the, the need to be busy, time is money, we need to have this structure, we need to minimize the unpredictable, so you better come on time. That's an, an expectation. And in fact, within that cultural value, that's just going to come naturally. You're going to be on time for things. You're going to be more precise in your work. Now, if you have a deviant idea, maybe a different way of doing something in that work structure, that's not going to be celebrated in the strong avoidance culture. Because again, that's a, that poses a, a different possibility for the future, an uncertainty if you do something a different way. So in those sorts of cultures, there's a resistance to innovation. Whereas in weak uncertainty avoidance cultures, people are more uh, open to innovative ideas and to possibly even different sorts of behavior that might be outside of typical cultural norms. It's like, hey, that's okay. We'll give that a try. <laughs> Motiv you're motivated in the strong uncertainty avoidance culture by security to um, be esteemed. But in a weak uncertainty avoidance culture, you're motivated by achievement, right? You are not so much doing this out of fear of loss, but out of the possibility of something new being achieved. Now, how do these different cultures deal with the realm of politics, of religion, and ideas? Well, weak uncertainty avoidance cultures, they typically are more lax on the rules and laws. They have fewer rules, and laws may be more general. Strong uncertainty avoidance cultures, though, they have many laws. They're very precise. They deal with every possible situation. Again, you're trying to minimize the uncertainty. In those, in those cultures where you're minimizing uncertainty, you want to avoid uncertainty at all costs, those rules, they had better be followed. And if they are not followed, you better repent right away. Or there's going to be some serious social consequences. Uh, that's, that's a big deal. Uh, there's also a tendency in strong uncertainty avoidance cultures to um, not allow protest. We're going to repress protest. 
because protest is a threat to the structure, the system, and the threat to the structure and the system creates more possible uncertainty. So this only makes sense. In a weak uncertainty avoidance culture, things like protest are acceptable, they're maybe even encouraged. If a rule cannot be respected, if people can't follow the rules, instead of people repenting and saying, I'm a sinner, uh, the rules just get changed. Well, these rules don't work, you know, <laughs> especially if you get a, to a certain threshold. So we're going to adapt and we're going to change the rules to fit people's um, behaviors. It's a very, very different, very, very different expression. The weak uncertainty avoidance cultures, they lean more towards tolerance, towards moderation, whereas strong uncertainty avoidance cultures err on the side of conservatism, uh, law and order. This helps you understand this dynamic. I don't want to unpack it all right now, but the, the cultural dynamic we've gone through in the past uh, year in particular, the difference between the Blue Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter movements are largely a result of whether you want to have strong uncertainty avoidance culture or weak uncertainty avoidance culture. That's not the only dynamic, but it is an important one. You'll generally find that in weak uncertainty avoidance cultures that there is more acceptance for plurality of different religious views, of philosophical values. Strong uncertainty avoidance cultures really try to push for a universally shared religious system. They're going to try to push for a universally shared within the society and group, a universally shared uh, philosophical outlook, a uh, universally shared political outlook. There's going to be a push for uniformity in thought because in that uniformity of thought, there is the reduction, at least the perceived reduction of uncertain outcomes. In a more specific sense, you might find that in strong uncertainty avoidance cultures, that philosophy and science, they, they tend towards universal, unifying theories uh, versus weak uncertainty avoidance cultures where you might have more diversity of opinion. There's a tendency in philosophy and in epistemology towards relativism. People of different religious backgrounds, of different philosophical schools of thought, of different worldviews can be friends. They're more likely to be friends or see the other person as a possible friend in a weak uncertainty avoidance culture. Okay, so what are some of the examples on the national societal level of weak uncertainty avoidance cultures and strong uncertainty avoidance cultures? Countries like Greece, Portugal... Guatemala and Japan are some of the cultures that have the strongest uncertainty avoidance, while places like Denmark, Sweden, Jamaica, and Singapore have some of the lowest or weakest uncertainty avoidance cultures. What about here in the U.S.? Well, only 10 other national cultures have a lower or weaker uncertainty avoidance rank than the U.S. So by and large part, American culture again, on a national macro level, is much more open to risk-taking and to innovative and strange ideas. But how this cultural value interfaces with the values of microcultures and subcultures like church communities is a, is a really interesting dynamic, especially in light of the COVID pandemic, this contentious political cycle we've been living through, and the 
civil unrest that we have seen over the past year. In the final section of this podcast, in in conclusion, I want to explore these dynamics and think about their application, especially for people who are in or who have spent any amount of time in Christian communities or institutions. The first question I want to wrestle with is, why have the COVID numbers been so much worse in the U.S.? Well, it could be that in this regard, our value for individualism doesn't interface well with a pandemic that seems to require more collectivist efforts and orientations. Viral diseases, they are a collective experience. They're spread collectively. So how do you stop their spread when you have a supreme value of individual sovereignty, free association of persons, freedom of assembly, etc., right? That's, that's really, really hard to do without radically reorienting the value system of your society, which kind of gets at some of the pushback people have. We'll talk more about that in a moment. It could be that collectivist societies like Japan, who also have the strongest uncertainty avoidance, Japan has the strongest uncertainty avoidance, may just be better equipped in their cultural values to deal with a viral pandemic. So Japan's got going for it, and I say going for it in its ability, at least in this regard, for these cultural values to be effect, more effective in dealing with a viral pandemic, they have a uh, strong uncertainty avoidance culture. So strict rules, right? We're minimizing unexpected things. We are not necessarily taking as many risky innovations. We're going to do what minimizes risk. And on top of that, they are a strong collectivist society. To, this, to the date of this, the recording of this podcast, Japan has only 2,139 COVID deaths. That's insane. I mean, that is a staggeringly low number. What are they doing differently? Boy, to get at that, we'd have to get at the fundamental cultural values of Japan. Could we ever have Japan's outcomes when, in regards to uh, these COVID numbers? No, we couldn't without a total and complete reorientation of our cultural values. You combine our individualism with our weak uncertainty avoidance and strong masculine-oriented political party in power, which is placing and has placed primary value on work, material success, And you know what? It's probably a perfect storm for a viral pandemic to do horrific damage. Now, I want to be clear. I am not saying that we can evaluate our American cultural values as being right or wrong, good or bad, based solely on what has happened during this pandemic. Because along with that, if we were to say, go through some radical societal reorientation, which a lot of people are concerned about, especially those that are concerned about, you know, conspiracies involving this pandemic. What they're really concerned about at its core is how the sorts of changes necessary to deal with the pandemic in a much better way would require a reorientation of our values. And they're going, I don't want that. And you can see why. I want to help you understand this so that you don't demonize the person that maybe even has some COVID conspiracies. 
I don't want to do that. I've spoken out about the QAnon thing. I've called it a cult, and it clearly is a cult. But you have to, I even wanted to make sure in communicating that, that there are reasons why people get sucked into that cult. The innovations, the goods and services that the U.S. produces with that masculine energy is a valuable blessing to the world, too. You know, it served us pretty well 80 years ago when Hitler threatened to take over the world and eliminate the Jewish people. You know, you get rid of the masculine energy. You move to a strong uncertainty avoidance culture. You get rid of the individualism just to deal with the pandemic. And boy, are you making matters worse in another domain. Our individualism that we have sees the individual person as of supreme value. And that's a pretty big deal. You know, that did eventually eliminate slave labor here in the U.S. It probably took too long, but it did eliminate it here in the U.S. While a collectivist society like China is still employing slave labor camps. It's a big deal. Like the Uyghur Muslims, they are still, I mean, they have people in slavery, in slave camps. Things that were like, how can you do that? You know what? Our individualism has largely eliminated that. Now, you can bring up, well, Paul, hey, you know what? We're still buying things. Nike and Apple might still be using that. And you're like, hey, I get that. That's a good point. <laughs> and we need to wrestle with that too. But my, my, my larger point here is if you're going to radically reorient society, you have to accept that other things might go down with it. We talked about gross domestic product per capita. And among more individualistic oriented societies, that it's higher. There's a higher standard of life. There is more poverty for people that are in collectivist countries. And, and, and it's like, do we want to trade that? Which one's better or worse? We're experiencing this right now as we are going through these more collectivist changes that dealing with a viral pandemic seems to require, that it is, it is certainly affecting the material well-being of millions and millions of people in the U.S. And so there are people that are concerned about that. They're going, hey, I don't know how I feel about a lockdown. And you know what? Demonizing that person because you go, hey, I think this is the right way to go to deal with the pandemic doesn't do any good. We need to hear, hear each other and hear where our values are coming from, how our values are shaping these attitudes and behaviors that we express. People that are pursuing more collectivist-oriented solutions, more strong uncertainty avoidance solutions to the pandemic might be doing so because they have a deep concern for the people that are being harmed, that are being killed by this virus, the many hundreds of thousands that are dying as a result of it. They might have a more feminine orientation and cultural value that cares for the weak, that cares for the elderly, whereas that masculine energy might be going, hey, you know what, we got to keep the market going. And you know what, if some elderly people die, or some people that are already weak, so be it. And that's, that's a difficult dialogue to have. So for those of you that are like, hey, you know what, we're just taking this pandemic thing way too seriously. Can you understand why people want the lockdowns? Can you understand why people think that it is good for us to not go into work, to potentially stop the spread of it? Do you understand why they might have the more collectivist orientation, even if you disagree with it? Can you understand it? At the same time, 
those of you that are wanting, the more collectivist, the more strong uncertainty avoidance, can you understand why, especially here in the U.S., people feel threatened by the push to have these sorts of value changes? And the more they feel threatened and pushed, the more likely they may be to see some sort of powerful conspiracy behind it. It's true that among the world's major powers, there are all sorts of soft power attempts to get a foreign nation to experience a cultural shift. We do it all the time, guys. I mean, the U.S. does this all the time. It's done this quite a bit. You know, Russia attempts to do it with us. China does as well in, in other nations. Like, this is... This is a real, real thing. I mean, it was a huge part of the Cold War propaganda. And oh, my goodness, what are they trying to do? Even if they're not sending troops in or drone strikes, they are trying to influence and change the balance of power in the world. And the way that they do that is by affecting or attempting to affect values. This is why you would find in that China frequently censors American movies. Uh, or why fundamentalist Islamic regimes do the same. They don't want those movies coming in as a soft power, communicating a different vision of reality, communicating different values, and having a subculture or countercultural movement bring about radical changes to their cultural values. People understand. They understand. The Chinese government understands that cultural aesthetics, even if they won't use this language in particular, they get that cultural aesthetics are a portal to the culture spirit, to that invisible domain of values. So if, you know, in America, if you get enough people consuming American culture via Hollywood, it's in, within perhaps an American interest for that to happen in China. And eventually what you're going to get, if that happens in, in China or Iran, is you'll eventually get subcultures that have been influenced and affected by Hollywood, by American cultural values. And what they're going to begin to do is they're going to begin to challenge the dominant cultural paradigm. The tension between internal micro or subcultures and their value system and the larger macrocultural values of a society can become really contentious when there is dissonance, more dissonance than harmony in the values. And this should, this dynamic should really help you understand much of what happened in the civil rights movement of the past in the 1960s should help you understand what has taken place in the U.S. this past year with the Black Lives Matter protest and the, the violent collisions of varying groups like Proud Boys and Antifa in places like Portland and then the countering suspicion of many, uh, especially many people in uh, traditional American value structures, oftentimes in traditional conservative evangelical churches that are looking at things like BLM, Black Lives Matter, and they're going, is this a Marxist coup? You can see why this stuff happens. The civil divisions can really be understood as subcultures desiring a different sort of value system. In this case, you might have, for example, in the case of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, you have a subcultural movement that is desiring perhaps a more collectivist 
a more feminine and a smaller power distance society. Those who disagree with a group like BLM might do so because one, they just don't find enough harmony between BLM's values and their values, or two, they find a sufficient amount of harmony, but they just disagree with their methodology. That doesn't make everyone that's for Black Lives Matter, you know, demons. It doesn't make people that are against that movement demons. You might just simply have people that go, I don't see harmony between the values of this movement and organization and my values. There's not enough harmony. Even if they go, hey, I like this point and this point, there could be nuanced disagreement. Sure. Are there racists out there, flat out racists that are like, hey, we just, we just don't like black people? <laughs> Yes, that, that certainly is the case. But so much of these disagreements that we turn into ad hominems and, and vicious attacks towards each other, we just need to understand there's differences of values. In some cases, there, is, there are people that go, hey, I have shared values, but I don't agree with the methodologies and practices towards those values. Let's take a real practical example that really hit home here where I live, uh, where I work in, in South Minneapolis. There are people that hear messages, for example, like abolish the police. And it sounds to one person or group like, hey, let's minimize the power distance. Let's become a more caring feminine society. But to another person that hears abolish the police, it actually sounds like let's increase our uncertainty with less order and I'm fundamentally against that, and I find it dangerous. I, I want to avoid more uncertainty. So eliminating the police or reducing the police force increases the amount of uncertainty. And they just have, perhaps even within their subculture, whatever that subculture might be, whether it's a family dynamic, the schooling they were a part of, the religious community that they're in, they just go, I have a strong uncertainty avoidance. And less police, less order, perceived order by me, increases the uncertainty. And I don't like that. Or it could just be that someone goes, I don't think cutting the police force adequately expresses the feminine desire to care for the weak that I have. I think that the police are necessary to preserve and protect the weak, you know, and, and make sure that they aren't victimized by other people. So you have get people in this debate about, you know, abolish or defund the police, and it gets really vicious. And it's like, hey, maybe let's just sit down and hear each other and try to understand what are the cultural values that I have been shaped, uh, that have shaped me and, and, and have shaped you. And why is it like that? Can we seek better understanding of each other? The really tricky part about all of this, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are in a Christian community, the really tricky question that might be running through your mind is, what should the culture of the kingdom of God look like? That's a really good question. It's a difficult question, but it's a good question. It should be the question that we are asking if we are, we've committed ourselves to be followers of the way of Jesus and we're serious about the coming of the kingdom of God. We want to ask that question, what is the cultural values of the kingdom of God? If we imagine the kingdom of God as a society, which it is, uh, it's a different society than nation states, but it's a society nonetheless, what should those cultural values look like? This is a really good, important question that we have, we need to ask. But in my humble opinion, 
many people ask that question, but don't critically interrogate their own cultural values, or they don't listen to Christians from other cultural contexts and try to understand how they interpret what the way of Jesus looks like in the world, especially right here in America, down to the regional and local cultural differences, there is a real danger of assuming that a true Jesus culture will fit neatly within our cultural values. And it colors our reading of the scriptures in a way that can horribly misuse even the most genuine zeal for the kingdom of God. So to simply say, I want the values and the culture of the kingdom of God. I want a genuine Jesus culture. If we say that with all the earnestness and zeal that we can muster up, but we don't critically interrogate our own cultural values, then we will often find that our pursuit of the kingdom of God or what we think is the kingdom of God can often be just a deeper manifestation of the values that we already see as true, good, and beautiful. One thing should be made clear when we read the New Testament is that the kingdom of God is for every tribe and tongue, every people. No single ethnic group or national culture has a monopoly on it. That is a huge part of the New Testament and the, the, the difficulty that uh, the, the early New Testament church had was this new reality. You look at a book like the book of Romans and that, that, that is like what the church in Rome was really wrestling with. We got Jews and Gentiles and some of us here have thought that there's one ethnic group or national culture that's got a monopoly on what the kingdom of God looks like, but we got Gentiles here and they're kind of used to you know, their culture kind of running the world. Boy, this is, that's a tough situation that Paul had to help them navigate. But it's essential that we understand that the kingdom of God is for every tribe and tongue. No national ethnic culture has a monopoly on it. This is why, practically speaking, reading voices throughout church history can be a really helpful counterbalance to us and our ways of reading the scripture where we go, hey, I don't know if I'm just reading this in a biased cultural lens. Well, one way you can check that out is read church history, read the church fathers, read medieval theologians, read reformers, read people across time and culture to see, well, how did they read the scriptures? How did they understand God's story? Do that. And along with doing that, Read theology from different denominations, from different cultural contexts, from your own. Get outside of, you know, if you just grew up in a Methodist church or you grew up in a Lutheran church or a Baptist church, read outside of your denomination. It's really simple, really helpful though, because it can give you maybe a helpful balance to the culture that you lived in and go, hey, you know what? Are other people seeing it this way? Are other people seeing the cultural values of the way of Jesus this way? Are other people seeing the culture of the kingdom of God expressed in this way? I need this checks and balance system. When you do that, don't get angry when you read another perspective. Yes, their culture that they inhabited, whether you're reading Martin Luther in Germany hundreds of years ago, whether you are, you know, um, reading the perspective of a uh, let's say a Latin American liberation theologian, don't get angry when you read another perspective. Yes, their culture works as mind software, programming their perspectives. 
but so does yours. And Christ is at work in every culture. So as we put these cultures together and we compare and we, we see people that are striving earnestly to understand what does the values of the kingdom of God look like, and we recognize that Christ is, is at work in every culture, there may be some ways that our cultural biases begin to get balanced out, and we can see a more complete perspective of what Christ's kingdom is all about. This is really hard work. I acknowledge it's really hard work. It's something I'm constantly working on in my own life. If you're in a Christian community in Sweden, where the cultural values are weak uncertainty avoidance and the feminine, or if you're in a Christian community in Japan, where the, the larger cultural values are strong uncertainty avoidance and the value of the masculine, well, golly, how does the way of Jesus fit within one of those cultures? Does it do that more so than another? Is the kingdom of God more likely to be made manifest in Sweden's culture than Japan's culture? That's a really tough question. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. How do you do that? If you grew up in a Christian community in Japan versus growing up in a Christian community in Sweden. Some of you lived in different places of the world and you've traveled. How do you navigate that? Does the kingdom of God have its own clearly distinct culture? Is it a small power distance? Is it a large power distance? Is it more individualistic or collective? Is it more masculine or feminine? And how should Christians feel about uncertainty do we avoid it? Do we embrace it? Is it a balance of each one? I'd love to hear from you. Reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. I always leave a link in the description of each podcast where you can connect to me on there. But you can also connect on Patreon, uh, where we have a growing community of people who are supporting the work I'm doing on this podcast, but also connecting together. We'll have a forum discussion for this episode where you can participate and share your perspective. I really want to hear from you. I mean, is there, as you go through and you become more familiar with the four dimensions of culture that we've explored today, is there one that is, well, this is clearly more in line with the kingdom of God than others? Do we need to have a balance of one or the other or one and the other? How do we navigate this? How do we begin to shape what we believe are the values of the kingdom of God? Have you encountered other Christians outside of your denomination or outside of your culture that helped you see things a different way, maybe gave you a better perspective? I'd love to hear from you. So jump into the forum discussion for this episode uh, so we can have some conversation together that you can even learn from other people who are wrestling with this stuff. I'm learning from people who are contributing on the, the Patreon page. So you'll find a link for that in the description of this podcast as well. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode, as well as the first part of this episode. We are in episode 78 and 79. I hope you got a lot out of it. I know this work from Hospiti has been very, very valuable to me. Hopefully it's helped you see some new things uh, about your own culture and the subcultures you inhabit. So again, I'd love to hear from you. You can get involved in those discussion forums that I talked about on Patreon. You can reach out to me on Twitter. Those of you that are in the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can always just send me a message if you want to, instead of having a public conversation, just 
have a private conversation about the things you agree with or disagree with. I, I'm more than fine with all of those avenues of communication. Those are, those are great. I want to give a special thanks to the members of the Deep Talks Patreon community for their support, for supporting this podcast, and ensuring that I can continue to do this ad-free. I love being able to do that. And just simply, instead of sharing like a product or some sort of a service, uh, I'd much rather share the names of people who have been supporting the podcast and thanking them by name. I want to give extra special thanks to those who are in the Theology 201 level group or higher. It's people like Tim K, Taylor S, Stephen M, Sean C, Sarah R, Sam and Nicole, Paul R, Paul S, Michael uh, P, Michael H, Michael Hawk, Luke H, Justin, Josie, John Michael, Eli, Carrie, uh, Carolyn, BJ, and Jesse. Thank you all. I can't do this without you. I'm so tremendously indebted to your generosity. I'm so thankful that you see value in this and you see enough value in it to support it at that level. Thank you so much. For those of you that are interested in getting involved in supporting this podcast, again, Patreon is the best way to do it. I always have a link in the description. There's a bunch of bonus things that are helpful for those of you that I think uh, enjoy or want to go deeper in the subject material and in other things. We do Q&A episodes. There is articles that I write. There are, um, I share, you know, charts and <laughs> graphs and, you know, all sorts of other things, links to other things I'm finding helpful, downloading even academic papers, things like that that um, might be of particular help for those of you that really want to go deeper and uh, really love exploring this intersection of theology and all of our attempts to find and make meaning in the world. So thank you for your support. I encourage you to check that out as well. I also encourage you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, still the number one place where people are going to check out podcasts. And so you leaving a review and leaving a rating helps other people discover the podcast as well. So thank you all for listening. Again, reach out with your comments, your feedback, your objections, your opinions. I love hearing all of it. This isn't the same unless you reach out and we, we talk about things together. So I hope you'll do that. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.